Uh, we'll talk about, about church a, a, as a family. But we're going to spend some time talking about who we are and why we are what we are. And so this morning's family value is this. It's gospel centrality. Now, the word gospel centrality, some of you, uh, if you read or, or, or drink from the, the same wells uh, as, as I do, you're familiar with that term. And others of you are like, what does that, that term mean? And so I think it's wholly and completely appropriate that we begin to define that, that term. And so we're going to define that term, tell you where, that, uh, um, uh, where we're coming from with that, and then we're going to go to Scripture and say, this is, this is why uh, from Scripture. So uh, the idea of gospel centrality um, in a certain sense, at least the terminology, is... is is a reaction, and we don't we don't want to be too caught up in, in reactions. But it was a it was a corrective that happened in the church uh, within the last last decade, uh, less than that that probably, where we looked at what was happening in in the church, and we realized that what was happening was based upon something other than kind of the centrality of God in in God's God's word. Which I I don't mean to be uh, mean to be a critique. But it, what seemed to have happened is that the churches had become very um, driven by what you might call pragmatism or the idea, um, does it work? And so they, were, they became driven by things that work. They became driven by, by other sorts of things. We always, we always tease about um, one of the favorite, uh, Pastor Aaron once sent me a link to a, to a church. Uh, and he said, you should try this, and it was a link to a church where the pastor had ridden onto stage in a Harley Davidson. Uh, that was the cool part of it, uh, I think, and then for some reason they had clowns juggling and doing clowning on stage during their, during their church service. Um, and the reason they were doing that, the idea was, they said, well, if we do this really pragmatic stuff, then that will attract people to the church. And so we've lived kind of through, through a generation, several actually beginning back in the 1980s with the advent of what was called the church growth movement. We've lived through the, this time where people uh, said to themselves, we must attract people to the church. And if we can attract people to the church, we, we, can, uh, we can teach them the good news about Jesus. I think that's the original, and I think that's a good impulse that we wanted to attract people so that they could hear about Jesus. But what happened over time was a couple of things, is that pragmatism, uh, as, as a way, became to more and more dominant. And so what would happen is they say, we got to attract people to church, and it wasn't just motorcycles and clowns, and thank goodness most churches did not do motorcycles and clowns, especially clowns. Uh, most churches did not do that, but they... they um, the, the pragmatism started to seep in in other ways. So the question would be, we've got to do a message series. What kind of thing can we say that will be most helpful to our hearers? Again, that's a good impulse, but it's a bad beginning place because what happened then is that they said, well, people have trouble with their marriage. We should do a series on marriage. Excellent impulse, but then that series would become distilled down to five to ten or three, or whichever tradition or whichever group you're in, 
uh, suggestions, essentially, about how your marriage could be improved. And what happened then, coming out of the, the 1980s, coming forward, pragmatism sort of shows it's had in the church. What happens is we tended to get a lot of messages that were, were self-help messages. If you will do this, if you take this step, then this will happen, this will happen. You guys who know me and have been around Crosswinds, you know the joke I typically make is that what we ended up with was, was 15 steps to a super, super, super happy pet, right? And that was what we were preaching. Come and I'll give you 10 steps to a happy marriage, three steps to happy children, four steps to, to, uh, to happy pets. And then so pragmatism sort of took over our, our congregations, Several problems with this, this pragmatic push starting in the, in the 80s, accelerating, coming into our own time. That push is what we discovered at the end of it is, is that motorcycles and clowns and whatever else they were do, typically those congregations would start with a big band uh, songs. They would play something that you might hear on the radio and there'd be smoke and everyone would go, oh, it's so cool. And the church experience would be similar to a concert experience. What they discovered after doing a study after... Um, from 19, the, the 1980s to the 2000s, into the 2000s, what they discovered is there were not more people who had not attended church, attending church after all of that push than when they began. And what they also discovered, and you know this, that we live in, a, we live in sort of a Walmart generation. You know that when the Walmart showed up on the scene, what happened was the mom and pop stores, the local stores sort of went away. And so what happened in America is we got a bunch of very, very large churches, but what had happened is all the other churches just sort of went away. And what was discovered is what was predominantly being attracted to these pragmatic services, to these attractional services, were people who were already interested in going to church, and typically those people were already uh, disaffected Christians or, ha ha or, or Christians in general who transferred from one church to another. And so all I'm trying to do is set this stage for this idea that, that pragmatism had largely uh, taken over the church. I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not negative on the impulse. I 100% understand the impulse. Uh, to a certain extent, as someone who plants a congregation in 2001, I'm a child of the impulse. In, in my head, in the things that I had learned about church planting and starting churches when I started in 2001 is that you show up, you, put, you have a good band, you do this, you have this kind of thing. Then lots and lots of people are going to naturally want to show up to your congregation, and they're going to want to, to be a part of it. And so what happened is the church growth movement grew some churches. It shrunk a lot of other churches. And at the end of the day, if you look at the statistics for Christianity in America, America's less Christian than it was at the beginning of the church growth movement. So I say all of that to say then there was this pendulum, pendulum swing, and we need to, I will admittedly say, we must be careful with pendulum swings, but this one seems to be a good one. There was a recentering in, in the church and amongst several churches that said, maybe the answer is not to be more pragmatic Maybe the answer is not to be more uh, uh, attractional in, in that sense, but maybe the answer for us is to center the church in what the church is supposed to be centered on. And so that's how we get the term gospel centrality. And one of our key family values here at Crosswinds is that we want to be centered on, based in, and everything we do affected by the gospel. So we're going to do some, some definition there, but I, I would say this is that it, 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 as opposed to saying 
that uh, we are going to do things that, that attract uh, people. We want to attract people to, to our congregation with the, these things, right? Uh, like, uh, I can not walk sometimes, and there's not much room for... I was trying to think if we had a Harley Davidson in here and that thing was kicking... Like, we'd probably all end up in the hospital with, like, gas fumes, right? Um, I don't think we're inviting the clowns to stage anytime soon. There, there is a reason for that, and the reason for that is this, is that those things have been shown that while they could attract a crowd, they did not ultimately do what they were wanting to do, which was make more and better followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, the swing back and the corrective to that was this, is that, that even though the impulse was good, the answer was wrong. We can never grow the church of Jesus Christ by talking about things other than, than Jesus Christ. And you might attract a person to, to a show. You might attract a person to, uh, to, uh, to the music. You might attract a person to, to the personality of, of a pastor. You might attract them to all of those things, but they are a sorry and poor substitute for what the church is supposed to be about. And so the church then, we believe, is supposed to be about the centrality of the gospel. We need to talk about a couple of things then. One is a definition of what the gospel is. Is If we're going to say that we're gospel-centered, what is the gospel? I'm going to read to you from 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, which is going to form the basis of the verses we will uh, speak about this morning. And then we're going to launch into this discussion that we need to have of what the gospel then is. It says, you therefore, my son, this is Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy was someone he had trained up, someone he was instructing, someone he had discipled into ministry. Timothy is leading a church. Paul writes to him, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in grace, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. When Paul writes to Timothy, I think he's giving him a structure. He's telling Timothy how to do ministry. Timothy, here's how I want you to do ministry in the church. What does he tell him to do? He tells him to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what he has heard from him, Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men. What then is, I think, what Paul is essentially saying, what Paul's suggesting to him, and it's said here, you be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Also, Paul is saying, essentially saying this, Timothy, I want you to be centered in and about the gospel. Timothy, what is your job? You, Timothy, should be gospel-centered. We know this because he tells him to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So then, what is the gospel that Paul would, would, would espouse? What is the gospel that, that Paul would have Timothy teach? It is a gospel fully and 100% based in this concept of grace, what does crosswinds mean when we say we want to be gospel-centered or gospel-centric? We mean we want to be centered in the biblical concept of how God is in the business of drawing people to himself and saving them. How does he do that? He does that through grace. He tells Timothy to be strong in grace because it is at the heart of the gospel. So what is the gospel in shorthand, and we'll shorthand for a minute. The gospel is this, is that you and I, 
This begins with bad news. The gospel itself is good news. But beginning with bad news is this, is that you and I were born into this world totally and completely without the ability to follow God on our own. The fancy theological word might be totally depraved. The idea, though, is this, is that you on your own did not have the ability or, or the desire or anything in you that would ever follow God. It's how you were born. It's how you were growing. It, it is how you would have died. But God in his goodness, and God because of his care and concern for you, decided that he did not want to leave you in your state of depravity. He did not want to leave you in your state of brokenness. He didn't want to leave you in your state of separation from him, but rather he decided that he wanted to rescue you from it. To do this, God had to, to deal with a very serious issue. And the issue was this, is that you were by nature and by birth a sinner. And your sin was separating you from God relationally, but it was also separating you from God legally. Meaning that, that your sin was causing it so that a good God could not, in his good justice, look down and say, well, they completely sin and they do evil all the time, but I'm just going to let it go. The gospel is not, uh, is not like Disney. It's not just letting it go. There is, there is, that is not what God does. Rather, he looked at your sin and realizing that someone had to pay the price, his justice said this sin needs to be paid for. The price needs to be paid. Similar to if you committed a major crime, uh, you went uh, around and, and robbed all the houses in, in the neighborhood and they came to you and said, someone's got to pay the price for this. If you went before the judge, the judge has sentencing guidelines if you're convicted he has to follow those sentencing guidelines. He cannot just say, I'm going to let it go. God himself had sentencing guidelines based in his own nature, based in his own goodness, based in the way he created the world. And the sentencing guidelines said this, everyone who sins must pay the price for their sin. The price that must be paid was death. And so God, when he looked at you and he looked at me and looked at the sentencing guidelines, realized that the only, the only way to satisfy his justice was death. Someone must pay the price for the sin. God in his goodness, though, decided not just to go, well, they messed up. Humankind is awful. Let them die and be destroyed in their sins. Rather, he decided to send his son Jesus, who did not sin, and therefore, and never sinned, he was without sin, he perfectly kept all of the law, was not deserving of death, therefore Jesus, when he came into the, this world, was not subject to the sentencing guidelines of every other person in humankind. Every other person was subject to the sentencing guideline, the guideline was, because you sinned, you must die. But Jesus comes into the world uh, as the Son of God and God in the flesh incarnate. You know the, the story of Christmas. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, uh, uh, born of the Virgin Mary. We say that every week. He grows into an adult. He kicks off his, his ministry. He preaches the, the, the gospel. He, 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 we have recorded all of the things he does. But the one thing we are sure of from the, from the record, from the gospels and from scripture, is the thing he does not do is he does not sin. And because Jesus never sins, 
he becomes then something that we do not really have built into our legal system, but thank goodness God did, and it was this, is that he who knew no sin was able then to become the sacrifice, or he was able to become the one who would carry out or who would receive the sentence that should have been imposed on us. And so if we, if we reduce it just to one person as a representative of the group, I was born a sinner, I sin regularly, unfortunately, it was part of my nature, and it was also part of my affections. In other words, I was born liking sin. I was an enemy of God. God looked at me, he, he saw me, he recognized me as a sinner. The sentencing guidelines say, what do I do with Dave Drake? He is a sinner and an enemy of, of God. What did God say that it should be done? Well, his word says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, the sentencing guideline says, Dave Drake must die for his sinfulness. God looked at me and it, he realized that the sentencing guideline said that I must die, but in his goodness, instead of putting me immediately to death, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to not only fulfill the law, in other words, live a perfect life, but he never sinned, and then he sent Jesus to be put to death on my behalf, so that the crime that I committed, the sentence was, was, was carried out by Jesus. The same as if, if I went and I uh, committed a horrific crime, and they were about to put me into jail, and someone came along and said, no, I will serve the sentence for you. We don't have a way for that to happen in our legal system, but we understand that in history, that is what happened. Jesus took the punishment, Jesus took the pain, and Jesus carried out the sentence. Uh, the sentence was carried out on Jesus. So the wages of sin is death. That is what each of us deserves. That is what I deserved. That is what you deserved. That is the bad news of Scripture. The good news, the amazing news, the wonderful news is this, though that you and I deserved death, the sentence was not, does not have to be carried out by us, but rather if we will come to Jesus, he has already already taken the punishment. He has already taken the pain. He has already taken the suffering that is associated with the punishment that should have been given to us. Jesus has died in our place. That is the core and the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is this, that you and I sin. God is just. We deserve punishment. The punishment we deserve is death. God is not only just, he is also loving and he is also good. In his goodness, he sent his son Jesus to die or to live a perfect life, to die on our behalf, to take the punishment that you and I deserved, to be put in the grave, to be there for three days, to walk out of the grave three days later, proof that the punishment had been paid. Uh, propaganda, one of my favorite poets says it like, like this, the... the, the the crucifixion was Jesus paying the price for our sins and the resurrection was proof that the check had cleared. When Jesus walks out of the grave, it means that sin no longer has to have power. Sin no longer has control. Sin no longer is in charge of us, but rather the good news of the gospel is this. You and I can have a relationship and a friendship with Jesus. Based on what? Based upon what you do? No. Based on what I do? No based on, uh, on our ability to earn it? Absolutely not. Based upon the fact that, that God thought we were really, really, really close and trying hard? No. Uh-uh. We've talked about that for weeks. Based upon what? Based upon the goodness of Jesus and the, the divine sovereign choice of a loving 
God. That's good news. That's gospel. And so we made the decision, uh, and we will say this uh, unashamedly, Crosswinds is about that message. It is about that message every week. You hear me say it regularly. We have one message. If you were looking for a different one this week, we apologize. We only preach one thing. We preach Jesus. From the Old Testament to the New Testament to every page of Scripture, we are convinced because Jesus was that the law and the prophets were about him. The Gospels are the story of him. The epistles are are telling, uh, telling us how to live in him, but the whole story builds to him and from, to, from him, and the reason we are giving scripture is that it might reveal to us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and the Father's love for us and his plan. And so, so every week when you come to Crosswinds, one of those things you need to know when we say we are gospel-centered, we are going to preach gospel to you every week. You are going to hear this every week, gospel, 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 gospel. You're going to hear this idea that you cannot do it on your own. It says right here, you, my son, be strong in the grace. We are going to emphasize grace. What is grace? Grace is the fact that you have deserved, that you have not received what you deserve. Grace is that God does not pour out upon you the punishment that you deserve. His grace is what saves you from being the one who carries out the sentence. His grace is what saves you from being the one whom he pours out his wrath upon. His grace is what makes it so he looks at you and sees you through Jesus and he takes joy and pleasure in you instead of wanting to destroy you. That's his grace. His grace is that you have received from God that which you did not deserve. Salvation, resurrection, new life. His grace is also... Uh, Well, his grace then is that you you do not receive what you deserve, which is death. His grace is also that you have received what you do not deserve, which is blessing, right? The scriptures tell us that that every good thing is available to us in Christ. The scriptures tell us that we are co-heirs with Christ. Think about that word. See, this is gospel too, and this is grace too. So you and I, we know this, that Jesus saves us through his grace. We know that on the cross, he has taken the punishment of our sins so that we don't have to die. Would it not be good enough if Jesus went, here's the thing. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to doom you to separation from me forever. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give to you damnation, but I will save you. That would be good enough news. And if God just saved us, but our relationship was just a little bit strained due to the fact that we crucified him, you would kind of understand But there is no strain in the relationship. There is no brokenness in the relationship. It would have been enough. He goes, I'll save you. But you're kind of, you got to sit over there in the timeout seat, right? One of the things I've been doing at my house recently, I I have people in and out constantly. uh, And I I have, uh, uh, there'll be young men and not even, uh, older teenagers, people in their 20s. And so we just got this this porch uh, on our house. And sometimes someone will be in my house and they'll say something crazy. And I'll be like, that's it. Sit on the porch. No, seriously. Just sit on the porch. No, sit on the porch. Think about what you just said, right? I don't really make them do it, but I say it a lot. And I'm like, just go sit on the porch. Here's the thing. Would it not have been enough if God, having saved us, there's actually in, in um, one of the, one of the, one of the, uh, the, the, the songs that, that the, the, the Jewish children sang was called Dayenu. Dayenu, it would have been enough. It would have been enough if God just Brought, just brought us out of, of, of Egypt, Dianu. If God had just done this, Dianu, and it was the story of what God had done to the children of Israel, in each step it would have been enough. Well, would it not have been Dianu? Would it have not been enough if he had just saved us? 
okay, I'll save you. But you people, you're not worthy of the house. You sit on the porch and think about what you did. But this truth of the gospel is beautiful. Not only do we not receive what we deserve, sin, uh, the, 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 the punishment for sin, which is death, not only do we not receive what we deserve, death, but we also get things we don't deserve because Jesus does not go, okay. I'm saving you, but sit out there. But rather, he has invited us into the house. The scripture tells us that we're co-heirs with Christ, and this is what I want you to think about. Co-heirs, meaning you receive everything that Jesus receives. Co-heirs. You receive the same inheritance as Jesus Christ. I want to tell you this. You are not worthy of the inheritance of Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. He was the second person of the Trinity. He was there at creation. When they said, let there be light, Jesus was there. When the earth was formed, Jesus was there. When the, when the giraffes and the zebras and the lions were made, Jesus was there. And I'm just trying to point out to you the amazingness of who this is. Jesus was there. When, when the children of Israel needed guided, when the, when, when, when the children of, of Israel uh, got examples, Jesus was there, and the examples were, were about him. And so it might not have been that, but Jesus has always existed from the beginning of time when it says in Ephesians 1, 4 that God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Jesus was there before the foundation of the world thinking about you. You woke up this morning thinking about you too. Here's the difference. You're not the Lord God. And the Lord God is thinking of you before the foundation of the world. That is amazing. And all I'm saying, I make this point, is that you weren't at creation you weren't spending all your time thinking of others. You did not die to save humanity. You are not coming again to wipe out evil. You're not doing any of those things. But you're going to get the same inheritance as the one who did. That's gospel. And we are going to preach that every week, every week, every week, every week. That's grace. Grace is not getting what you do deserve, death. But it's also receiving what you don't deserve. The same inheritance as the Lord Jesus Christ. So then... Back to our passage. You, therefore, my son, Timothy, be strong in grace. It's telling Timothy to be strong in grace. And here's the point that uh, when, when Pastor Dave and I talked about what we wanted our congregations to catch this morning, here's one of the things we want you to catch. Is that the gospel, Paul's essentially reminding Timothy of the gospel. And he's reminding him of the heart of the gospel, which is grace. And he's telling Timothy to function from the gospel. He's telling the pastor, you be strong in in, in the gospel. And what I want to remind you of this is that sometimes we think that the gospel is something that we move on from. We think the gospel is what saves us and then we continue on by something else. That is a wrong way to think of it. Both uh, Pastor Dave Black and I come from traditions that essentially and implicitly taught us that we were saved by grace. But upon having been saved by grace, we continued by effort. And I don't think that they would they would explicitly express that doctrine, but that was their implicit theology. You're saved by grace. But once you're saved by grace, Jesus has saved you, you better start measuring up. That is not an illusion that the scripture labors under because the scripture knows who you are and God before the foundation of the world knew who you would be. That's why the scripture says things like, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's why it also says when he says those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He understood that, that the work of grace does not stop. The gospel is not something that we move on from. The reformers had a saying, the reformers that I've, that I've said to you before but I'll remind you of again, the reformers had a saying, the gospel is that I am saved 
that I am being saved and that I will be saved. Right? The gospel is true. It's an instantaneous uh, entering into the family and the people of God by which we are saved. That is what we typically call salvation. That's true. But the gospel functions daily to, 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 to grow and to work in you, your salvation. You are being saved each day. There's never a moment when God removes his hand or removes his grace from being active in your salvation, and you will be saved, meaning there's coming uh, an eschatological reality. There's coming a time in history when God is going to return, and your salvation will be complete and full. Sin will be wiped out. Death will be overcome. Crying will end, and joy will triumph. That is coming. So you are saved when you enter into the gospel, but you are being saved daily. And one of the things I think happens in, in if you come from a tradition like I came from, we so emphasize the point of salvation, the point of getting saved um, in our tradition, asking Jesus into our heart, that sort of thing. We, we so emphasize that that we think that that is the gospel entry point, but we think that the, the death, resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ, the pain of sins, the work of the Spirit, we think that those, those are entry points. And once we have been saved, now we can move on from the gospel. And I have to tell you that this seems to have been very damaging, uh, a very damaging doctrine. I happen to have gone to um, youth group with, with a very large youth, youth group where the majority of those people are not following Jesus at this moment. In fact, they seem to have walked away. But if you talk to some of them, what they'll say, oh yeah, well, I'm saved. You remember, I prayed that prayer. I did that. I, I did. And so we have, we, have, we have reduced, we've been reductionistic in our treatment of the gospel to the point that we think gospel is a prayer, uh, is one prayer at one point in history. And because Jesus is, is, is good and, and active in salvation, then we move on from it. And people move on in one of two ways. In, in a lot of people in the tradition I grew up in moved on from the gospel by trying to legalistically then earn the favor of God, which let me just say to you, Stop trying to earn the favor of someone who has already given it to you in Jesus Christ. There is nothing to earn. There's, there's, there's nothing to do. And so there's this attitude, and I might have even heard this enunciated, well, Jesus shed his blood for you. You should pay that back. I want you to hear this. You will never, ever, 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 ever pay back a single drop of the blood that the Lord Jesus has shed. But I want you to hear this. In Jesus Christ, you have nothing to pay back. Your debt has been paid in full been paid in full. And so I want to remind us then to not move on from the gospel in our daily living. And the reason we're going to preach it every week is because believers need the gospel. You need to show up and be reminded of the goodness and the grace and the amazingness of a God who rescued you and saved you. You need to be reminded of how great he is. You need to be reminded of his glory. You need to be reminded to worship him. You need to be reminded to be in awe of him. You need to be reminded to shed tears at the greatness of him who has done this for you. Not only has he saved you, but he's made you his heir a co-heir with Jesus Christ, the one who died for you because of the crime that you committed, not only rescued you from death, but he has given you his inheritance. You get treated by the Father as him. That is amazing. You need to not forget that because if you remember that and you know that and you live into that and that, that, that infects you and takes you over and it becomes the soul of your being, here's what I will guarantee that the truth of the word is there. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You will become more holy. You will become more like him. How do I know? Because the Bible says so. The word says so. Jesus says so. That's what grace does. And my worry is, is that we move on from the gospel and we move either into lychee answerlessness or, or we move back, well, Jesus has saved me. I will do whatever I want. You'll excuse the turn of phrase I'm about to use. 
But it seems to me that some people treat salvation like this. I am not going to hell, so I will do whatever the hell I want. And then there are other people whose attitude is, I am not going to hell, but I need to pay back, and I need to work harder, and I've got to do this. And so the problem with that is that those are self-defined legalism, seldom found in Scripture, and they have no power to endear you anymore to a Savior who has already rescued you. You can't be loved by Jesus anymore. So here's, here's just a, an addendum before we move on and apply this. So my worry in preaching every week is, is this. It's called, you go, why do you preach it constantly? Why, should we preach that constantly? Yes, we're going to preach it constantly. Why? Because there is no other message upon the face of the planet that transforms, rescues, and saves people. It's the only message I have. What else would I preach about? You have a well-behaved cat. I need Jesus, and I don't need a pastor to come up here and tell me uh, 15 steps to having a better marriage. A better marriage without Jesus is not a better marriage. I don't need 16 steps to being better on my job. I don't want to be better on my job if I don't know him. Why would we peddle these junk messages, these things, when we're not telling the truth that people need Jesus and nothing, nothing changes anything? I could preach to you a message about any ethical sort of thing you wanted, any behavioral sort of thing. I could preach to you messages about health. I could preach to you messages about smoking. I could make you physically healthy, but only the gospel is going to keep you from going to hell. That's the reality. And I could teach you messages about 10 steps to happiness, but only the gospel is going to transform you, bring you into relationship, friendship with the Lord Jesus. The word of God says this in Psalms, that in his presence are pleasures evermore. You want a good marriage? Know Jesus. You want a better marriage? Dive into the gospel. Be saved daily. You have been saved through salvation, but you want a better marriage? Grow in him. Know him. You want to be better on the job? Know Jesus and become like him. Lean into him. The gospel is the only thing that transforms. I could stand up here and preach to you a self-help message, but the problem with self-help is self-help is exactly why people need rescued. Self-help is exactly what is saving them, sending them to hell. Self-help is exactly what couldn't save. Why would I tell you about helping yourself? Yourself is the problem. Jesus is the answer. And the gospel is the only thing you're going to hear us preach every week, every week, every week, every week, every week until we are no more or Jesus comes. That's what we're about. Now, I want to warn you of this, is that some of us who grew up in the church think that we have the gospel figured out. Like, I know the gospel, I'm saved, I know it, I, I got it figured out. And so we get into this point, we think, oh, I got the gospel figured out. And what I've discovered a lot of times is that the very people who think they have the gospel figured out, the people like, I grew up in the church, I accepted Jesus when I was this age, I've been doing this, I'm doing that. I find that a lot of times that the people, whether they, whether they are living in a sinful freedom or whether they're living in a, in a legalistic cage, what I find is a lot of people who think they know the gospel actually have what I would call gospel inoculation. Do you know how flu shots work? So flu shots, they load up a, 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 a needle and they fill it with, with, with dead and ineffective flu, uh, flu cells. Don't check the science. Uh, the science is right. That word might not be right. S flu stuff. They fill it up with flu molecules, right? 
And they take that and they inject that into you. Because when they've injected the dead and ineffective, ineffective molecules into you, cells into you, your body learns how to fight it, and your body never gets the real thing. That's the way it, you know, it's supposed to work. Whether it works like that or not, that's the theory behind an inoculation, right? We take a dead version of, of whatever we're trying to protect against, we inject that into a person, and your body fights against it. My worry is that a lot of us have heard dead and ineffective versions of the gospel or we have mentally assented to dead and ineffective versions of the gospel and it has functioned for us like an inoculation. We've injected bad versions of the gospel, just enough gospel into us that we can't hear the real version. And that's my worry. And so I'm talking to you people who grew up in church specifically. If you're from my background... If you're from a different background, I, I'm worried about us that, that, the, that we've been inoculated to the truth of the gospel by a false gospel that says, well, Jesus is here to save. After that, do, either do whatever you want or live in your cage. And I want to warn you against gospel inoculation. And I want to ask all of you to question yourself on this. Do I know the God of Scripture in such a powerful way that it changes everything? Is my life changed by him? Is my life dominated by him? Is my life c controlled by him? Long time ago, a guy named um, uh, John Milton wrote a poem called Batter My Heart, Three-Person God. And essentially, he said this. He said, batter my heart, three-person God. Come and ravage me. And he goes on to, to say, destroy me if you must. But the idea is, is that he was aware that somehow his heart and his mind and his soul, who he was, had, had been inoculated to the truth of the gospel. And he realized that he needed God to come and wake him up in a huge and powerful way. My prayer for you, some of us here this morning is that we would, we would be battered by God if that's what it takes, but that our gospel inoculation would, would, would wear off and that we would come awake to the true, powerful, real gospel that we could have. Not, not a fake one based in doing whatever you want, not a fake one based in legalism, not a fake one based in anything else, but, but the real gospel. So, here's why it's a family value for us. Crosswinds is going to teach that, preach that, that same thing every week. You know, here's my instructions to you from this stage. If I ever start to preach something that sounds different than what I said, you go and you get the rest of the elders and you see that I'm removed. We are a gospel preaching church. This is our value. This is at the heart of what we do. The gospel is central. Why is the gospel central? Because it's the only thing we have. If the gospel is not true, we have nothing. Why are we here? But if the gospel is true, then it must inform and change everything. How does that play out here? Well, Paul says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Commit to faithful men. So we're going to teach the gospel to you, grace, week after week after week after week. Now, does the gospel apply to marriages? I know I use that as a, a crutch. Absolutely. We are going to bring the gospel to bear on marriages. It does. Because the gospel people have different marriages. Does the gospel bear on what you do at your job? It better. If the gospel doesn't have bearing on what you do at your job, if the gospel is not transforming how you act in the workplace, you need to question whether you've been inoculated to the gospel or whether you have the true gospel in you. It does, it does change everything. Does the gospel change how you treat your children? It does. Does the gospel change how you treat people? It does. What we are going to do, though, is regularly... Teach it from the pulpit, and we're going to regularly pass it on to you so that you can pass it on to others. Because the gospel, 
What Timothy had heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses, Timothy was to give to faithful men who would be able to teach others. We are going to both teach you the gospel and we're going to teach you to teach the gospel so that you might go about the business of sharing the gospel. The gospel has a missional impact. The gospel is not something that we show up each week and preach only to ourselves. But the gospel is meant to be expansive. It's meant to be expanded. We are going to disciple and teach and use all of these things to teach all of us more and more and more how to share the gospel. So so I know I teased about it, but I do believe this. It's not 10 steps, but the gospel transforms marriages. It's not 10 steps, but the gospel transforms you in the workplace. It's not 10 steps, but the gospel transforms and has something to say about how you parent. The gospel absolutely changes how I parent, right? Because if the gospel is true, and God loves me in grace, and God cares for me, and he looks at me in love, when my children sin against me, when my children rebel against me, if I'm a gospel person, do I come down against them in anger or do I come at them in grace? It affects things, right? The gospel bears on marriage. The gospel bears on parenting. The gospel bears on everything. And if you've been living life in a way that is not gospel-centered, I want to tell you, you are missing out and it is not going to be the life that you long for and it's not going to be the life that you want and it's not going to be the life that you were made for. The gospel does indeed transform anything. And so... Each week at Crossroads, you'll hear us again and again and again and again. Bring the gospel to bear on every issue. We will go through a scripture passage and tell you how the gospel is explicated and the gospel is made clear in that passage and why the gospel, when applied to your life, changes everything. And then we're also going to teach you the gospel and ask you to take the gospel with you into your everyday life. That's why you bring the gospel to work. It's why you bring the gospel to, you, to your children. So that your children might know that Jesus is Lord. So that your co-workers might know that Jesus is Lord. If the gospel has transformed you, you will have a burning desire for the gospel to transform others. At the heart of Crosswinds is this idea, we have a burning desire for the gospel to transform the people who sit here, but we have also a burning desire for the gospel to transform the community, the neighborhood, and every place around us so that Jesus might be known, so that Jesus might be declared, so that Jesus might be glorified, and so that Jesus might transform it. We are involved in a lot of things, Right? We're, we're, we do outreaches, we're involved in the, the schools, we do, we do social justice stuff, we do that kind of stuff, but at the, at the heart of all of that is this idea, is that the desire of crosswinds must be that Godwin Heights knows Jesus, that it's transformed by Jesus, and that the gospel of Jesus is, is, is saving them to the day that Jesus comes, that Godfrey Lee might know that the West Side might know, that Grand Rapids might know that the gospel is true, and that starts with you and I being routinely, regularly transformed and conformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own lives. It's crosswinds. You're expecting a different message. I apologize. We have one. We preach Jesus. Pray with me.